Clearshore presents Technology, Innovation, and Modern War, Class 13, ONR, Rear Admiral Lauren Selby, by Steve Blank, November 24, 2020, at steveblank.com. We just held our 12th session of our new national security class, Technology, Innovation, and Modern War. Joe Felter, Raw Shaw, and I designed a class to examine the new military systems, operational concepts, and doctrines that will emerge from 21st century technologies, specifically space, cyber, AI, machine learning, and autonomy. Today's topic was the Navy and modern war. Some of the readings for this week included Defense Primer, Department of the Navy, Navy, Lasers and Railguns, Navy, Large Surface Combatants, Navy Force Structure and Shipbuilding Plans, Navy Large Unmanned Surface and Undersea Vehicles, and China's Navy Modernization. Our guest speaker was Rear Admiral Lauren Selby, Chief of Naval Research, United States Navy. Admiral Selby is responsible for the Naval Research Enterprise. It is the venture capital of the Navy and Marine Corps. It's made up of ONR, the Office of Naval Research, ONR Global, the Naval Research Laboratory, and Special Projects, PMR-51. His insights on the future of the Navy and reimagining naval power are insightful, innovative, and exciting. ONR played a seminal role in the formation of Silicon Valley. Founded in August 1946 in the aftermath of World War II, ONR provided support of research projects at universities when government funding to universities had dried up. That same year, Fred Terman became Stanford's Dean of Engineering, and he received four ONR research contracts for electronics and microwaves. These grants formed the heart of the Stanford Electronics Research Laboratory. I've extracted and paraphrased a few of Admiral Selby's key insights and urge you to read the entire transcript and watch his video. Here's a picture of the way I divvy up my naval research portfolio. On the left is the division that's home to cyber and electronic warfare. A little bit of AI, but really mostly electronic warfare. The next area is ocean battle space. This includes unmanned underwater vehicles, UUVs, and we do submarine applications and oceanographic research in that division. We take a great deal of pride in really understanding and knowing the ocean environment. Of course, the submarine is critical, but really everything from the weather to the way our forces must flow, optimizing transit routes, all depends on currents, winds, and weather. We use those factors to help us also determine what potential adversaries might or might not do. All that goes into the calculus of how we position our forces. In the middle are mission-capable, persistent, survivable naval platforms. This division looks at the systems that are on our platforms. That is, pumps, valves, materials science, corrosion. There's science to be done in perfecting some of those, and they're critical in the operation of these platforms. This branch looks at maintenance practices, trying to make sure we protect those. Warfighting performance looks at how the human body responds to stress, how we can optimize performance of the human body in combat or in other stressful scenarios. How does the human brain work? How do we think? When I look at reimagined naval power, I think a lot of that is not about things, it's about processes. It's about how we present information. It's about how we process information. 
how we use machines to help us make decisions. This group traditionally has not had as much focus as the others, but I think it's something we really need to go after. The far right is aviation, jets, missiles, also directed energy, railguns, hypervelocity projectiles, and hypersonics. And across the bottom is the naval accelerator run by Rich Carlin. This group figures out how we go faster in getting things to the fleet, from an ideation to the thing to a warfighter. How do we do that faster than anybody else? Reimagining naval power is about the way we think and organize, not about hardware. I know you were assigned to read The Kill Chain. Fascinating read. As I read through this book, it really resonated with me because this is the world we're in today. Navy officers still tend to think of the solution to the problem set as, I'll just get a better destroyer, or I'll just get another aircraft carrier, or a bigger, faster submarine. And I don't think that's the solution. This quote out of the book I thought was interesting. Military innovation is less about technology than about operational and organizational transformation. I hear you thinking, you're the chief of naval research and you're saying that it's less about technology? Yeah, I am. When I say reimagined naval power, I'm not necessarily talking about new big gray ships or black submarines. I'm talking about changing our processes, changing the way we think and the way we are organized. I think a lot of the problems we have in acquisition today in trying to go after these new technologies is because of the way we're organized. The way the Navy is established, separate system commands, one for air, one for sea systems, one for cyber systems, supply over there, they're separate. You've got stovepipes and you've got barriers. There's friction between them. And all these differences come because of that, and that impedes progress. If we want to reimagine naval power, we have to look in a mirror, recognize we need to change some things organizationally. We've got to change the way we do business. When I'm asked what do I hope the fleet looks like 10 years from now to make it relevant in a fight with a near-peer competitor, is that a 355-ship navy? Is it squadrons of unmanned vessels? I think it's something in between. I think that you will see more unmanned, unattended things. They'll be networked together. I think initially what you're going to see, and again, this is just the way we tend to do things as human beings. When it comes to new tech, we take the new tech and we jam it into a form factor of something we recognize and know. So what you're going to see are unmanned surface vessels that look like the Sea Hunter. It looks like a catamaran. It looks like something you recognize and know. That thing, whatever it is, whether it's underwater, surface, air, will initially operate in tandem with a manned platform. I think the answer is not just to go build bigger, faster, gray-holed ships or black submarines. We still need this for a while. We're not going to stop, go to zero, and do something else. It's going to be a gradual thing. But I think there needs to be a plan with a trajectory of slowly weaning us off of those very highly complex and expensive vessels that takes us into something else. And some of that something else might be unmanned, uncrewed, uncrewed vessels, unattended sensors, highly networked together, passing tracking information back and forth. I think that's more of the future combined with how we make decisions in a more efficient, faster manner than the adversary. You're going to have to have these things as kind of wingmen that'll be arrayed around your platform. 
and you may be able to send it a couple of hundred miles out front to go do some probing of the adversary. Maybe it's got some decoys and other things it can do while it's out there. Then it will come back. You have to refuel it at some point because it's still going to have a limited range. I think in 10 years, you'll find many, many more unmanned things out there, but they will be operating close to the gray hole or the black hole submarine, able to go out and do things but come back. So I think that's step one. But over time, it's going to be driven by the younger generations, people like you, who are not constrained by thinking it's got to be a gray hole or black hole thing. And they will come back in and look at us and go, if you change the form factor, you can make that thing. It could be a surface thing. It could be a semi-submersible when it needs to be. Make it so it just drops below the surface a foot, and it can still cruise along slowly. Things like that will happen, because again, this does happen all throughout history as technologies have been introduced. We always try to take it and make it do what the old thing did. Submarines traditionally have a periscope. You look in the barrel, it's got the mirrors and the glass and the prism at the top looking out, and you're looking through a circle. That's the world of a submariner. That's what I looked at for 20 years, 25 years. Today, we've got these new cool electronic photonics masts. Guess what? When you look at the picture in the control room of a submarine, you may be on a big flat screen, you may control it with a joystick, but it's still looking at a slice of the world. We didn't go, hey, if I just put four cameras or six cameras up there, and I was able to set them around looking, I can have a 360-degree camera all the time. Well, we're just now starting to do that. We started some R&D on that several years ago, and it petered out because they didn't have the money to keep it going. But now we're back to, this is ridiculous, let's get 360 out of that. That's the challenge with new tech. The problem today is, it's going so fast that if you wait a generation to make these kinds of advancements, you're so far behind anybody, adversary, other companies, that you're irrelevant. We've got to break that pattern, and some of that is changing those organizational constructs that still have us back in 1994. We've got to get to 2020, or 2018, or 2015. I'd be happy with that. But we've got to get out of 1994. As far as size, you may have seen the press. The SecDef just announced the Battle Force 2045. It talks about 120 to 240 unmanned things in concert with a bunch of manned things. And it talks about a much bigger navy. We'll see what happens. A lot depends on what happens with Congress. We always have to find a balance between funding exquisite equipment that costs a lot of money, and that's very hard to replace, with building lots of low-cost equipment that's less capable but easier to replace. We have this very big appetite for highly complex, which is exquisite, phenomenal best in the world. No question about it. Costs a lot of money to build. And oh, by the way, they cost even more money to maintain over the life of a 30, 40, or 50-year platform. We need to get away from that. Part of the answer is a lot of these uncrewed surface or underwater vessels. But even those, when we send a design over to my friends in the Pentagon to develop requirements, what they come back wanting is exquisite, too. You take this thing that should cost $10 million or $20 million, and it comes back costing $100 million or $200 million or worse. I think that if you could build cheaper in more numbers that are maybe complicated but not complex, that would be just fine. 
and I would build them so they're semi-disposable. You run them hard for 10 years, but you don't spend a mint to refurbish them. You take them back to some yard, you recycle them, you take all the materials out and build another one. That's the way you've got to do it. Another thing we have to do is recognize that we've got some constraints. We've only got a certain number of shipyards that can build those highly complex destroyers, submarines, aircraft carriers. Our industrial base is very fragile. Since we're going to still build some of those for the foreseeable future, let those yards build those exquisite things. But we need to go to the non-traditional yards down along the Gulf Coast, Pacific Northwest, and other parts of the country, even to boat builders, yacht builders. Let's go to those folks to build some of these unmanned things. And let's give them some money. Let's move some defense industrial base money around, and we can develop new expertise in different pockets that we've never developed before. And let's do that at scale and build a lot. I think that's one of the keys to this reimagined naval power, because again, we just cannot afford to keep building the same things. If you went right now and asked the submariners what they want, they want SSNX, which is the next generation of submarine in roughly 2035. You talk to my aviator friends, they want the next-gen fighter about the same time. You talk to my surface warfare friends, they want the large surface combatant about the same time. Well, first of all, that's 15 years from now. So by our traditional design-build standards, that means you've got to strike like right now for all three. And we can't afford that. There's no way we can afford that. You may have noticed the SecDef's Battle Force 2045 came out saying you need to go to three submarines per year. So there's a tremendous recognition that we still own the undersea, and we need to maintain that dominance. But Battle Force 2045 doesn't call for as many surface ships. It does call for next-gen fighters. And there's a lot of reasons for that, which we can't talk about here. But it does not call for the large ships, at least not in numbers, and not at the same time. We've got to deconflict these things, and we need to build different things that are much less expensive. Some of what's changed in acquisition, and specifically has changed to make us move faster, is that we are using OTAs, Other Transaction Authorities. We've been talking about this for a long time. We're finally really trying to drive this hard, and we're finally getting contract shops in different parts of the Navy using them. Up until probably only a couple years ago, it was only places like ONR that would do these non-traditional ways of buying things. We've now got the big Syscom acquisition shops and contract shops realizing, hey, there's something to that. And when it comes to the development of technologies that cross traditional functional bounds, how do you get these folks together to solve these hard problems? You go inward. We try to find our smart folks in our own organizations that are somewhat constrained and tainted by the system set already because they live it. They're inside of it. General Stanley McChrystal in his book, Team of Teams, talked about how he organized the fight in the Middle East. What McChrystal realized was the value of the team of teams. The answers are not all inside my team. They may be in your team, or your team, or your team. The value, or the power, is how you net them all together. So he used to do the same every single day. He would have this video teleconference, and he had one guy who ran the meeting. They would have a bunch of topics they would go over every day. A set of stuff you would do, an ops brief. 
and then they would have someone give a problem statement and maybe a little bit of a brief. But then they let it go to the teams. The teams, not the team. And the synergy, the interactions of thought, it was incredible. That is the model I'm trying to figure out how to bring to my own ecosystem and then net in all the other teams around me. Whether they're different warfare centers or different parts of the Navy, Army, Air Force, whoever industry, academia, because that's the power. When it comes to warfighter performance and why it hasn't been emphasized as much as the other areas, traditionally most of the money went to build those high-end destroyers and submarines and next-gen fighters. So that would be, in my vernacular, code 32, 33, 35, not 34, which is human performance. That's the code that was on the right side of that graph. As a result of that, those other high-end things got all the money. That's also where most of the R&D money went. And most of that was focused on either another submarine, another aircraft carrier, another fighter. And because of that, there was very little left to go do the kind of human forward stuff. I still contend that that is where we as Americans have our advantage. The way we traditionally do this is that someone like yourself, someone who's in a grad program somewhere, gets involved in research sponsored by ONR or NRL, and you get your doctorate and you become a postdoc. And you continue to do that research in some field of study that we are sponsoring. And then at some point back in D.C., a vacancy opens and they say, hey, you can apply for this job. Next, you get a job. A lot of PhDs in my headquarters building came out of academia where they got their doctoral degree in some program sponsored by ONR. COVID has taught us a lot of things about how to work. Today, for instance, I was at work, but only about 30 to 35% of the workforce was there. Mostly people are working from home. We do some classified work, but we do enough unclassified work that you can do a lot of work from home. I told my team, I don't want to go back to whatever was called normal back in March. Let's find something good that comes out of this pandemic. I want to be able to hire people in California, in Washington State, in wherever, and tell them, hey, you can stay there and still work for me. I may ask you to come to D.C. once a quarter to do some required training and just do something else where we want to get together, but I will let you stay remote. Because I think we are missing out on talent. A lot of people don't come to D.C., and I don't blame them. There's a lot of concern in the DOD that we have some issues trying to attract STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, talent. So I'm trying to find ways to really amp up our STEM programs. I'm trying to find ways to attract more women, more diversity into our STEM field, whether it's undergrad internships or graduate internships, and I'm trying to find ways to get more people involved that we traditionally don't get. We put together a panel to give us some insights on how to attract the kind of talent we're not traditionally attracting. We found it's in middle school where we lose a lot of kids. Most elementary school kids think science is cool. I think for most kids, there's a wow factor in science, but somewhere in middle school to high school, it stops being cool, and that's really tragic. So we're figuring out ways to develop a cadre of mentors to go into the schools and help teachers and students to pull them across that valley of death where we lose them. I think there's far too many that we lose early for the wrong reasons. 
They don't see someone that looks like them. They don't think it's cool. Whatever. So we're trying to figure that out. Lessons learned. The U.S. Navy is at a historic crossroads. We are going to start seeing uncrewed ships and submersibles, first as wingmen to existing surface ships and submarines. We can get more ships if we build these new types of vessels so that they're semi-disposable. You run them hard for 10 years, but you don't spend a mint to refurbish them. You recycle them. We can build these new types of vessels in numbers by using non-traditional shipyards. Keep the existing shipyards building traditional ships and submarines. This will create new expertise in different pockets that we've never developed before. And this is in conflict with the existing major acquisition plans for future surface ships and submarines. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. We would like to hear from you, so please send your thoughts to comments at clearshore.us or visit us at clearshore.us. If you would like this show delivered to you automatically, you can subscribe to the Clearshore Podcasts on iTunes. Wishing you all the best until next time.